0: want to go on record and say I think that is the least masculine slide we have ever had in this church. I won't tell you who picked it, Ryan. Um, But it is Mother's Day at Rio, and uh, I'm really hoping to honor the Lord, by the way, first of all, but then secondly, the mom's. And I want to do that by recounting for you the story of one of the biblical moms. And she's a mom that I think that most, if not all, of the ladies, not just the moms, but the ladies in general, can relate to. And I say that for a lot of reasons, but maybe first of all, because, you know, she's a mom who knows not only what it is to be able to have children, but she also, by the way, knows what it is not to be able to have children. And we know that because she had no children with her first husband. That's not that weird today, but back then, highly unusual, Practically speaking, it was almost the whole point of marriage, and so she knows what it is to be barren, and I point that out because, guys, that's a Mother's Day issue, and so maybe you can relate to her. She also knows what it's like to be a widow. Her first husband dies, and for all we know, her second husband predeceases. We don't know that for a fact, but he's significantly older than her when she does marry him, so it's likely she was widowed twice, and I say that to you today because, well, I mean, there are some widows here today. Some of the dearest people to me here today. And it's Mother's Day, you know, and on Mother's Day, you're reminded and honored by the children that you do have of the husband that you no longer have. You think of him on this day. And so maybe you can relate to this mom. I think we can relate to her as well because, hey, she's a Moabite woman living amongst the Israelites in this story. Now, I realize you're not a Moabite woman who is living amongst the Israelites, but let's play out kind of what that means, practically speaking, because there are all kinds of implications to that. As a Moabite woman, she comes from a whole race of people that were born out of drunkenness and incest. Drunkenness and incest is her family heritage. Well, a lot of us wouldn't be too proud of our family heritage either. So maybe there's something there. As a Moabite woman, she comes bearing the reputation of a people who used their women to, at one point in history to try to sexually seduce the Israelite men. That's her reputation. Earned or deserved, I don't know, but, but that's what she comes into Israel with. Well, what has what your reputation been? As a Moabite woman, all the Israelites would understand. I mean, these, these Moabites at one time in history had tried to bring the curse of God upon God's own people only to receive the curse of God upon themselves as a result. And so as she comes into this land of Israel and begins to live amongst God's people, she comes in from their perspective bearing God's curse. Well, that's not too happy. And then on top of that, all the Israelites know that these Moabites... Celebrate and worship a God named Molech who requires them to literally sacrifice some of their children to him, the lives of their kids. So let me ask you something. Who in the world in Israel would be interested in marrying this woman and in having children with her? Hang on to that. The woman that I'm talking about is Ruth, and her story is in the book of Ruth. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, you'll find it. I'm going to mostly tell you the story because if we read it all, we're going to be here through lunch, and some of you have plans, so we're not going to do that. But her story really begins in the house of an Israelite couple named Elimelech and Naomi. And Elimelech and Naomi have two sons. Don't miss this. One is named Amachlon, okay? And if you think it sounds bad, wait till you hear what it means. It means sterile. And the other one is named Kilion, sounds slightly better, but it means spent. So these two Israelites have two boys, and they name their kids sterile and spent. (laughs) Seriously. That's bizarre to us today. Nobody, I mean, that's almost child abuse to us today. Why would you do that? Well, you wouldn't today, but back then it was not uncommon for the Israelite people to name their children in light of what was going on in the life of their nation, and what was going on in the life of their nation when these two boys were born is famine. In other words, they were born at a time when agriculturally the nation of Israel was both sterile and spent, but not just agriculturally. It's a very artfully written story, and what happens in this story agriculturally reflects what's happening spiritually as well. And so, in other words, sterile and spent are born during a time in the nation of Israel when the nation of Israel is both sterile and spent agriculturally and spiritually, which helps explain what Elimelech and Naomi do next. Because what they do next is they gather up sterile and spent, and they walk down to the border of the nation of Israel, this Jordan River, and they cross over it, leaving their hometown of Bethlehem behind, which ironically means house of bread. And they enter into the land of Moab looking for bread there, which is really just another way of saying that they run off looking for bread outside the will of God for their lives. Why? Because they leave the promised land to do it. It was never the will of God for these people to live in Moab. And yet Moab's a tempting place in the midst of a famine. You know, I think the reality is that all of us face famines in life, famines of every different kind. I don't even need to play out for you the various famines that you've faced in life because right now they're coming to mind, aren't they? Financial famines. I mean, all of it. It's like, wow, and some of you are in the midst of a famine right now. And what is the temptation that every single one of us faces in the midst of the famines of life? The temptation is to abandon this God who seems, at least from our perspective, to have abandoned us and to run off looking for bread, meaning to look for life outside of his will for our lives. It's true for all of us. But since it's Mother's Day, I just want to point out, you know, it's true for moms too. One of the things that I've observed is that it's difficult to be a mom. I'm going to be really honest. You know, there were many days, particularly as our kids were little, okay, that I was thankful to be able to get in a car and go to work. And, And if you have lived through that, Some of you guys here are going, yeah, man, me too. I can assure you that the job that I left my wife to do was far more difficult than anything I was going to face throughout the day, and honestly, I needed the break that she rarely ever got. Desperately, I needed it. I've talked about the difficulties of motherhood, but, you know, just put on your imagination for a minute and run with me for a second. It is difficult to be a mom. It's difficult to get everybody up and fed and dressed and off to wherever it is that they're supposed to go pretty much every day of the week. It's difficult to be the air traffic controller for the whole family. It's difficult. I made a list. (laughs) To be a tutor, a counselor, a nurse, a nutritionist, a teacher, a disciplinarian, an accountant. A fashion consultant, a house cleaner, a waitress, a cook, a lawyer, a lover, and a friend. It is difficult, as I've said also in the past, to be the person that everyone comes to in the middle of the night whenever there's an emergency or just because they're up. It's hard. It's difficult to be the one who's always worried about how everything is going and how everyone is doing and how everyone is feeling and if everybody's getting along and how, you know, how does everything look and and how are all of these little ones that have been entrusted to your care, really developing and growing up. And in most homes, moms feel that pressure most profoundly. Then, on top of it, a lot of you have careers, and I have absolutely no idea how you do it, but I do know this, there are famines. There are times when during your mothering, you feel starved of things. You feel starved of attention. You feel starved of adult conversation. Heck, you feel starved of ability to take a shower and wash your hair. Sometimes you arrive somewhere and you're just thinking, I'm dressed, that's a win. Who cares what you're wearing? You feel starved of intimacy with your husband or with your friends or with your mom or dad or siblings. Starved even of intimacy with your own kids as they grow older and begin to establish their own identities and separate. From you. There's a deprivation there. Starved of all kinds of things. I think at times you feel starved of sleep, of energy, of wisdom. You look at this profound responsibility of parenting and motherhood that God has blessed and given to you, and it's overwhelming, and you realize at times that you do not have what it takes to get the job done. You don't. Starved of the appreciation and the recognition that you deserve all the time, both for who you are and for the great contribution you're making, not just to your family, not just to this church, not just to this city, not just to this nation, not just to humanity, but most importantly, to the kingdom of God itself. That's what you're doing, And I think that there are days and weeks and even months in which you feel like your identity and (laughs) pretty much everything about you gets swallowed up in carpooling and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And at times, you're tempted to go looking for bread outside of this will of God for you. It looks attractive, doesn't it? But it will never satisfy you, ever. And it always leads to death. That's what happens in this story. Elimelech and Naomi get, grab up sterile and spent, you know, and they cross the Jordan River and they head off into this land of Moab, where notwithstanding their horrible names, both sterile and spent find wives. Go figure. So they get married there. We're throwing down some roots in this land, aren't we? And then what happens? Elimelech dies, sterile dies, spent dies. It's death. what it leads to. And Naomi is left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. Now, here's the good news. They would have made a profession of faith in the God of Israel in order to get married into the family. I mean, that's a prerequisite. So at least ostensibly, they're believers or professing to be believers at this point. But now here's the question. Both their husbands are dead. So what do you think Naomi's wondering? Were your professions of faith real or were you just really kind of digging, you know, my son's? And that's an issue, isn't it? I mean, that's an issue particularly for our single people. It's a big deal, man. Be careful who you give your heart to, please. It's not a little thing you're giving away. What happens is you meet people and you fall in love and it's... Is it real is what you want to know. Look for that track record. Look for it. So anyway, they head off into the promised land, and just before they get there, Naomi throws down a test. It says in Ruth 1, beginning in verse 6, it says, "...and Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law," here we go, "...to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food." So God has made Bethlehem a house of bread again. And she's heard it. So she set off from the place where she was in Moab with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi, who has probably walked them down to the Jordan River, again to the border of these two lands that also divides these two peoples, presents a choice. It says, but Naomi, who takes them down, I think, right to the border, stops. And she said to her two daughters in law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, she says, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant, she goes on, that you may find rest where? Each of you in the house of her husband. You're like, What husband? They buried their husbands. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And what in the world's going on here? She's putting them to the test. She takes them right up to the land of the border of the nation of Israel. And she says, ladies, here's the deal. If you're really committed to the God of Israel, then you go in with me and you join together with his people. But you're coming as a Moabite. The prospects aren't all that great for you in terms of remarriage. You're going to have to come in faith, knowing that you're laying everything else down to do it and entrusting yourself really and truly to this God of Israel. You can do that or you can do the expedient thing, which is go back to your people, go back to your gods, go back to your family, go back to your relatives, go back to your connections, go back to a place where you're a Moabite amongst Moabites, you're desirable for marriage, you can remarry, have children, live out your life. What's it going to be? do you really associate with the people of God and thus with God? Or was that whole deal about, you know, the whole faith thing, is that just something you said? And please understand that it is a package deal. It's interesting. The Bible knows nothing of people who profess faith in Jesus and have nothing whatsoever to do with the body of Christ. The Bible doesn't understand how you can love the head and hate the body and separate the two. It doesn't go in two pieces. It is a package deal to identify with the Lord God is to identify with the people of God, and that presents a significant challenge to us who profess to love Christ and really want nothing whatsoever to do with Him, His kingdom, His people, or His mission. So Naomi puts him to the test. But look at what she's offering. She's offering the bread of Christ. He alone satisfies. And she's offering the fellowship of His people. And that is a significant offering. I mean, as you look at that just from the perspective of mothering today, As you look around this church, this place is full of awesome moms, amazing moms, who are where you are in your motherhood or who have been, oftentimes, where you are in your motherhood and who would gladly walk through your motherhood together with you. Naomi walks them all the way up to the Jordan River and stops and says, okay, last chance. What are you going to do? And Orpah... Terrible name. Orpah says, you know what? I'm out. I'm going to go back to my people. The prospects look better for me there. I'm done. And Ruth, on the other hand, it says she clung to Naomi. And she utters one of the most famous statements in the Bible. She says this, Ruth 1 verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go and where you lodge, I will lodge your people shall be my people and your God, my God. It's a package deal. Where you die, she says, I will die and there I will be buried. I'm a lifer. I'm in it for life. May the Lord do so to me, she says, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so they head off together, cross the Jordan, go off toward Bethlehem, the house of bread, and they show up at the beginning of the uh, harvest of the barley um, there in Bethlehem. Now, why is that significant? Because it's a time of great agricultural abundance, isn't it? And it's an artfully told story. Good things spiritually are happening, and it's saying, something good is coming for this woman, but she could never have foreseen it. Chapter 2, verse 1, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name, don't miss this, was Boaz. It means, in him is strength. That beats the tar out of sterile or spent. (laughs) Much better name. So you got to get excited. It's telling you, start focusing on this guy. His name's Boaz, and him is strength. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi... Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, after God, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. All right, what's happening there? Well, what's happening there, and what this is telling you is that they come up into this land, and with no husbands or sons to take care of them, they are peasants, they are paupers, they are wards of the state, they are living literally off the welfare system of Israel, which, in which God came to the wealthy, and He said, Look, I'm enacting a law because I care for for the poor and here's what it is. You may glean your fields only once, not twice, not three times to make sure you didn't miss anything. One time and you will then allow the poor to follow your reapers and your gleaners. And whatever they accidentally miss by their own labors, then they will gather and they will eke out an existence. That's what she's going off to do. And you know, what's interesting is I've stood right where those fields once were. And the thing that struck me is that when I looked over these fields and I looked literally past Bethlehem, I could see with my naked eye clearly the mountains of Moab. You could see them. They're right there. They're they're there in the distance. They're not that far. So now you've got to use your imagination and put yourself into the sandals of Ruth for a minute. Here is Ruth, young lady entered up into the land of Israel in faith in God, but she's a Moabite, eking out an existence on the welfare state of Israel, both for herself and for her mother-in-law who presumably is too old to come out and to work in the fields with her, with no real hope or expectation that her fate is ever going to change. Why? Again, she's a Moabite. Who's going to want to marry her, take care of her? have children with her, and she does this day after day after really scorchingly hot day in full view of the land that she came from, which had to at times look like the land of opportunity. I mean, her sister-in-law chose it for a reason, it's the land of her family, it's the land of her friends, it's the land of all her connections. It's the land in which she's a Moabite amongst Moabites and therefore desirable for marriage. It's the land in which she's got a shot of marrying a landowner herself and getting off the welfare state and doing significantly better. It's the land of all of those things. What has Ruth done? She has chosen the God of Israel and poverty within His will above the bread of Moab. And I would ask you today, which one are you choosing? Following God requires a sacrifice. Practically speaking, it requires us to take one hour every Sunday and about, I don't know, two percent of our income and a few hours of our time a month and to give it to the Lord. Is that it? No. No, you've been bought with a price. How much of you? The whole shooting match, man. Practically speaking, following Christ is getting up every single day and taking everything that you are and everything that you have and putting them at the feet of the Lord and saying, okay, what do you want to do with it today? It's going all in, as one guy recently I heard say. He says, it's like taking all your poker chips and just pushing them all into the center of the table and going all in on the Lord. That's it. And here's the problem that we have, and all of us struggle with this. Believe me. The problem we have with that is when we hear that, all we can think about is what we might lose. And and we never stop to think about what we will gain. And again, since it's Mother's Day, I think it's right maybe to point out that For the overwhelming majority of the households represented here today, certainly in my home, the most sacrificial person in the house is the mom. And occasionally, the mountains of Moab have got to beckon. Every once in a while, something other than motherhood must look like the land of opportunity to you because you're bright, you're gifted, you're industrious. Some of you graduated magna cum laude, you know, you've got an engineering degree and you're making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, coordinating schedules. There is a wisdom that really questions the value of who you are, of what you do, and of the sacrifices that you make. But the story comes behind that and says, yeah, but there's a greater wisdom at play here. Don't miss it. Because according to that greater wisdom, what you do is precious. And it is of value in this life and for all of eternity. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech who had a great name and it's Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, we're starving here, we're going to get on the welfare state. So let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said, great idea, go my daughter. And so Ruth set off and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, quote unquote, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech and whose eye she really catches, probably not because she's attractive, though maybe she was, but most likely she caught his eye because he's thinking, Who is this Moabite woman in my field? So he calls one of his servants over and says, "Um, Who is this Moabite woman in my field? And he says, Well, that's the woman, Ruth, who is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and came over with her and has chosen the God of Israel and, and poverty, if that's what it means, within his will. And Boaz already knows all about the story. And look at how his demeanor changes. Watch what he says to her because it's significant theologically. It says in verse 8, "Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my, and here it comes, daughter. What is he saying to her? He's saying, you're not a Moabite, you're an Israelite. How? By DNA? Well, not by genetic DNA. By the DNA of faith, Perhaps. By faith, the true Israel is born. I mean, that's what it says in the New Testament. The true is not everyone is Israel that is Israel. It's the faith of Abraham, not his genes, that establishes the true Israel in this world. And this woman has the faith of Abraham. What did God come to Abraham originally and call him to do? He says, I want you to leave your country, your relatives, and your father's household. And I want you to go to the land which I'm going to show you, which is what? It's this land that we're talking about here. And what has Ruth just done? Exactly the same thing. And Boaz recognizes that. And so he says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or even to leave this one, he says, but keep close to my young women and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you, meaning not to throw you out of my field for being a Moabite? I'm protecting you. And then he says, and when you are thirsty, wow, this is a big deal, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He invites her, a Moabite unclean woman, no, an Israelite clean by faith woman, to drink from the waters of Israel. He goes on in a minute and he invites her to the table of Israel. He gives her the bread of Israel. He himself serves it. And in between we read the reaction of this woman. It says, then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Everyone else has overlooked her, not this man. And I think that moms feel overlooked at times. In fact, I don't think that. I know that. Oftentimes, you guys feel invisible. Truth is, 99% of what you do goes unnoticed by your husband, by your kids. You know, when they grow up and they have children, they'll call you. You know, but they're not going to get it until then. I guarantee you I miss stuff all the time. My wife could paint the house, turn it upside down, inside out, and take out all the furniture. I'd walk in the door, and then she says this to me occasionally, and it petrifies me. She says, so do you notice anything different? I just walk right out the door and leave. I have no shot. No, I don't. Don't do that to me, I'm begging you. Invisible. But not to the Lord. He doesn't miss a thing. Ever. Boaz is the Christ figure in this story. It's so clear. You'll see that even more so as we continue, but you're not unnoticed. Neither are you unappreciated. So Boaz notices Ruth. He gives her drink from the waters of Israel. He feeds her bread from the table of Israel. Then he pulls his reapers aside. This is so cool. And he says, look, she's going to be following you this afternoon. Here's what I want you to do. Make her job easy, okay? Miss all kinds of stuff. Cut it. Drop it on the ground. Let her gather it. And in one day, she gathers up 29 pounds of grain. That's 20 days' wages For a reaper in the fields of Israel, it's overwhelming. And she takes it all back to Naomi and she tells Naomi the whole story and shows her all 20 days wages, you know, and Naomi's like freaking out and she doesn't need somebody to come interpret this for her. She understands exactly what the Lord has done here and it's overwhelming. And so she begins to describe to Ruth who this Boaz guy is. And not only does he have a cool name, but at the end of verse 20, it says, this man Boaz, she's saying to Ruth, is a close relative of ours, and then here comes the really awesome part, one of our redeemers. Now, what does that mean? Well, every family had redeemers. And so, for example, if one of your close relatives died and left his wife a widow without a son, you would be required to take her to provide for her, to protect her, to marry her, and even to give her a son who would then take up the place of her dead husband and inherit her dead husband's land and estate and carry on his family name. So what does a redeemer do then? I mean, just in the simplest of terms, the role of the redeemer is to literally give life to the dead. He raises up a boy in the place of the man who has died. And he does it at his own expense because he doesn't get to inherit that land, which he probably otherwise would. So Naomi says, look, you know, man, we have hit the jackpot here because Boaz is our redeemer. And it's so clear that the Lord has brought you together. And how does the story end? It ends with Ruth coming to Boaz and literally laying down at his feet. And he gets the message. And he takes her. And he redeems her, and he marries her, and they have a son together whom they name, Obed. So they're not learning about the names, apparently, but it's all right. Obed grows up. He becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse grows up. He becomes the father of David, who becomes king of Israel, and who many generations later becomes the father of the Lord. Look at her heritage now. She's one of the mothers of Christ a Moabite. And what is that a picture of? It's a picture of the gospel. (laughs) I mean, it's a picture of this God who takes up people who are barren of soul and widowed of heart with questionable heritages and embarrassing, embarrassing things in our past, who have, you know, frittered our lives away, chasing after the bread of Moab, only to be left wounded and poor and to experience all kinds of death. And yet He reaches out to us and by faith He calls us son or daughter. This true Boaz who is Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, by the way, and who in faith offers us the bread of His body and the wine of His blood by which He redeems us, takes us to be His own and gives us life. He gives life to the dead and as we consciously and deliberately and daily push all our chips into the middle of the table and go all in on God, lay it all down at His feet and say, okay, what do you want me to do with it all today?" As we do that, we find Him sweeter than the bread of Moab and more profitable than all of the opportunities and possibilities of the world. And we gain in Him the heritage and the inheritance of heaven. It's amazing. He notices us both now and for all of eternity. But since it's Mother's Day, moms, He notices you all the time. So I hope that's encouraging. I want to have all the moms stand. I'm going to pray for you guys and then you can have a seat after I'm done because Sandy Ives is going to come up and tell you about a special resource that we have here at church for the moms. And I'd like to give you a hand we can do that? Can we do that? Good. All right, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this day that you've set aside in the year in which we might honor you first, Lord, but honor the work that you've done in our lives through these women. Um, God, what a privilege. And so I pray Your blessing and acknowledgement upon them this day. I pray, Lord, that they would sense deeply in their heart that they have, and all the time, been noticed by You, loved by You, appreciated by You, valued by You. And I pray that You'll give us, the rest of us, the grace to do likewise this day. We thank you for the blessing that they are to each one of us and to our families and kids. And we thank you, Lord, um, for giving them uniquely to us. And we pray that we would be a blessing to them and your blessing upon them this day. In Jesus' name, amen.